somewhere it's said that, uh, I think probably it's in the Visuddhi Marga, uh, that as, a, as practitioners, as meditators, our, our practice unfolds in uh, one of four ways. There are four ways that practice uh, develops for yogis. It's said that uh, it can be slow and easy. It can be slow and difficult. It can be quick and e- difficult and quick and easy one of those four ways. And probably most of us uh, would tend to say we're in the slow, difficult (laughs) category. I certainly would put myself there. But no matter where we might decide to place ourselves in terms of those, these four possibilities, I hope that we all can touch into the uh, the power of this intention we bring to the, this practice, and this intention to develop wisdom and understanding, and um, and really touch into the, this this inclination of mind, this movement towards uh, freedom, liberation, peace. However, we might hold that. I think we can safely say that we're moving in that direction. A great uh, teacher and translator Bhikkhu Bodhi once said this, liberation is the inevitable fruit of the path and is bound to blossom forth when there is steady and persistent practice. The only requisites for reaching the goal are two, to start and to continue. If these requirements are met, there is no doubt the goal will be attained. Well, that's, that's good news, the requirements that we start and continue. So we have all started, we're all continuing. We start and continue many times every day, don't we? Well, maybe I'm just speaking for myself. Um, I'm, my practice is a constant flow of startings and continuings uh, over and over and has been for a long time now. So it's, it's great to reflect on this and to reflect, not that we become sort of complacent or, or we, there's not, uh, there is a certain sense of an inevitability, but there is practice to be done. There is uh, a connection to a certain kind of effort, you could say, steady, sincere effort. As Bhikkhu Bodhi said, steady and persistent but really to bring to mind that what we're doing, you could say this practice is this process of every time we uh, start and continue, we're planting the seeds of liberation, the seeds of our future happiness, not just our own. And it's good to reflect in this way because this points to a, a place that we can get a little out of balance or a little stuck, you could say, sometimes. Or points to an attitude that uh, might be uh, mostly unseen, but can really uh, affect how we view things and how we approach our practice and how we experience it, really, I think. And it relates to um, that which 
it really draws a lot of us to this practice, to meditation in the first place. <clears throat> and that's a connection to uh, what's to stress or struggle or suffering. You know, this goes to uh, the core teachings and the noble truths and the first noble truth that there is dukkha. You know, life is not always easy. We all see this, and even you know we we have things we we have things pretty good. Those of us who are able to spend time at the forest refuge, you know, we're it's really cold out there, and we're warm inside here, and we have this. I mean, it's kind of amazing to be able to spend time in a place that. This place was designed and built and created for the sole purpose of providing conditions, good conditions for um, for meditation. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty amazing. It's amazing to have a place that's dedicated in that way in the world. To have the good fortune. So we have... We have such a blessing in our lives, but but it's it's our life is not easy, and you know sometimes just getting through a day is is hard, and that's and just finding any meaning in our lives outside of here, in a world that seems to have gone quite mad a lot of the time. It's not easy to do that, and I think most of us would probably say that at least in part, we, we have been drawn to uh, this practice, this path, because of a connection to stress and struggle or suffering in some way in our lives. It's rarely would it be that there's too much happiness. That's not a big problem for most of us. And, and, there's, and there is a lot of focus, you know, on dukkha and causes of struggle and stress in our lives and the teachings and the Four Noble Truths, as I was saying, it's expressed in terms of understanding suffering, its causes, what releases it. And there's so much in the teachings about, um, <clears throat> you know, understanding the, the roots of suffering in terms of greed and hatred and delusion, confusion in the mind. And we have to be on the lookout for clinging and grasping all the ways, all the even subtle ways that this shows up and ways we get attached and identified with things. And there just seem to be a lot of, a lot of stuff to be careful about and be wary of and pitfalls and dangers, hindrances and defilements. We're all walking around these buckets of defilement. You know, it doesn't look too good a lot of the time. Latent tendencies, deeply rooted, deeply conditioned habits of mind. Sounds like a lot of problems. You know, and it can seem as though there's the practice is this huge list of things that we have to fix and overcome and work with. And it can seem like this big project. And we can fall out of balance and our view can get heavily skewed in a perfect in this direction sometimes. We can fall out of balance with this and, and suffering and difficulties and stress and struggle 
and all these things we have to be on guard about. Be all we all we're seeing when we look in the mind and the heart. And you know the the people who study neuroscience, some of them talk about <coughs> what what they sometimes call a an innate or in a strong uh, bias towards uh, focus on or um, towards noticing the negative. There's one uh, neuroscientist who said that the the brain is kind of hardwired to scan for the bad. And when it inevitably finds negative things, they're both stored immediately, plus they're made available for rapid recall. <laughs> you know, they're easy, they, they get in there right away and they're, they're made easily available. And in contrast, positive experiences are usually registered through standard memory systems and thus need to be held in conscious awareness 10 to 20 seconds for them to actually sink in. And, and there's a certain logic or, or there's, a, there's a way that this makes sense because in terms of sort of primal instincts around survival, the stuff that doesn't look right, you know, let's say you're living kind of wild in the bush, that weird shadow over there, that thing that doesn't look right, that doesn't feel right, could be something waiting to catch and eat you or whatever. You can see how there could be a, a kind of, uh, you know, it, it would serve in terms of some basic survival. Sometimes, uh, I think the same scientist said, you know, the, the brain is like Velcro for the negative and Teflon for the positive in a certain sense, that image used there. <coughs> and, and the same scientist, this was a, a neuroscientist named Rick Hansen, he said, he suggested three ways to work against or to kind of, um, you know, bring more balance to what he calls, he calls it, uh, what does he say, this innate tilt towards the negative. He's a, a kind of rewiring of, of the neural pathway. So we can, we can look in this way. There's some value to this, I think. So he said, he suggests paying extra attention to the good things in our world, in our lives. <clears throat> in ourselves, noticing when things go well, actually um, really noticing them. When we experience kindness, when kindness arises in the mind and heart, when we succeed, he said to really focus on the sensations and the feelings there in positive experiences, to really remind ourselves that these are pathways to what he calls emotional memory and to savor them for, for longer periods of time. He said 10 to 20 seconds in that quotation of, I read, <clears throat> to really let it in and let it fill uh, our being, our body, our mind and heart, and to really um, sense it and feel it soaking in. You know, the image I have is that we marinate ourselves in it. Um, so this is an interesting uh, possibility and not something we might tend to do. I think we often often might tend to even turn away from these things a little bit. But we really need to do this and to really uh, touch this in our practice and remind ourselves that this is a path 
of happiness. It's a path uh, leading to happiness and there's happiness along the way. And reminding ourselves that the freedom that the Buddha is talking about is this deep light heartedness, you could say, and that the peace of liberation is the highest happiness. We can overlook or diminish, even not notice at all uh, when things are going well or what is going well in our practice sometimes. And, and the, the, the happy fruits that, that come along the way. Or even, you know, tuning to the, the joy of being able to do it at all. There can be a subtle kind of joy and just, it doesn't matter what's going on, but just, at least I find this at time, there's a delight in getting to actually look deeply inside. A joy in, in the process of, of in the movement towards understanding, developing kindness. I mean, what a great gift to oneself and a gift to the world. But this, this tendency to focus on what's difficult or problematic or unpleasant in a way, or to focus on suffering in the mind and the heart, it can become a real habit some of the time. We can risk a, a kind of hardening of the heart, I think, we can even uh, find ourselves turning away from happiness or from joy. We need to make sure we're not doing this. And, and I think it's especially true these days because there's so, there's so much that's difficult going on. You know, we come here and we get a little break from the madness of modern life perhaps, but there's a lot that's going on that's, um, very troubling these days. And the, the uh, divisiveness and um, lack of goodwill <laughs> seems so prevalent. You know, and we get so, I was talking to someone today about the way that we can, we can consume too much of that. You know, yes, we want to stay in touch with what's going on in the world, but it's like eating a kind of poison if we eat too much of it. We need to be careful what we're consuming, how much of it at least. And so, so to balance our, we need, we need, I mean, this whole path is a path of finding balance, you could say, in so many ways. And so really finding, uh, ways to turn towards joy and happiness. And this tendency, this uh, innate, this tilt towards the negative, this, this negative bias that can sometimes uh, characterize our, our experience can also feed into uh, the strongly conditioned habits that many of us have seen in our own minds and hearts to uh, to feel that there's something wrong with us, that we're not good enough, not okay in some way, somehow flawed, unworthy, this tendency towards uh, different versions of a kind of self-hatred or self-limiting, self-diminishing attitudes of mind. 
And of course, this all this isn't to say that we're not, we want to take a realistic look at things, bring a realistic assessment to things, and there is work to do. And we do need to understand the truth of suffering. There's a reason why the Four Noble Truths are expressed in the way that they are. There's a reason why the Buddha talked about this in this way. You know, we have to understand what it is that gives rise to stress and struggle and suffering in our lives. I mean, this is opening to uh, the suffering that leads to the end of suffering, because if we don't start to understand this, we're just going to be engaged with the suffering that leads to more suffering. So in order to realize the end of suffering, we have to see what its cause is and abandon that cause. That's what the Buddha pointed to in this teaching. But we need to be careful that we don't somehow fall out of balance in this process. And with too much focus on, on what's wrong. Or some kind of hypervigilance where we're always looking for what might be looming as a problem. Or looking for ways that we're getting attached or something. You know, we need this broader view. <coughs> And so seeing the, the path, the practice as a, as a path that's leading to happiness, but also opening to happiness and pleasant experiences along the way, the happiness and joy that's here and now. And we can connect this, with this to this in, in different ways, but I think one simple way that is um, maybe, maybe at times at least accessible and readily available for us is um, this Acknowledging this wish that we share with all beings to be at ease, to be happy. It's, it's inherently wholesome. And all of the nonsense and shenanigans that we get up to and that everyone else gets up to, even these really bad behaviors and wacko stuff, underneath that is this movement towards of wanting to be happy. It just gets very confused because there's a lot of there's not a lot to go on for a lot of people. You know, when we come to this practice, we get some maybe good possible strategies to find happiness, but there's not a lot out there in the world. People trying to be happy, and as the Buddha said, trying desperately to be happy, but doing the very things that lead to suffering. But underneath that is this movement of heart, and it's beautiful and inherently wholesome and beautiful. His Holiness the Dalai Lama takes this this universal wish to be happy takes it even a step further. He said, uh, one time he said, I believe that the very purpose of life is to be happy. From the very core of our being, we desire contentment. And this, seeing this as the, pur- the purpose of it. And then in this, in this uh, teaching that he was giving, when he was speaking this way, he went on to point towards uh, the key role that a sense of uh, interconnectedness, of non-separation with others, connecting through this shared uh, wish to be happy, perhaps. How, this, how key this is. He said, in my own limited experience, I have found that the more we care for the happiness of others, the greater is our own sense of well-being. Cultivating a warm-hearted feeling for others automatically puts the mind at ease. 
It helps remove whatever fears or insecurities we may have and gives us the strength to cope with any obstacles we may encounter. It is the principal source of success in life. Sense of warm hearted connection, feeling of non-separation there. And this is the essence of uh, the practice of loving kindness and the Brahma Vihara is this connection, this sense of uh, realization in the deepest sense. You could say that our happiness, the happiness of others is not, those are not separate things. Those are ultimately in the, in the final run, they're the same thing. And we can expand this sense of interconnection, of non-separation. We can even expand this to the point where um, it becomes an aspect of our motivation in practice. You know, we chant at the end of the evenings here, tonight we'll do it as we do. We chant uh, these this sh- verse, it's here, it's called the verses of uh, the sharing of blessings. When I learned this chant at first, it was called the verses of sharing and aspiration. It's kind of two verses. The first one is this sharing. The second one is, is an aspiration that arises from this act of sharing. These verses of sharing and aspiration. And it evokes this attitude, especially in the first verse there, of, of, uh, of actually touching the goodness through the goodness that arises from my practice, this actual sense of that that's true. <laughs> Do you taste that? Do you feel that? That goodness is not in any way connected with your assessment of the quality of your meditation today or any other time. It's not about that. And that's not a trustworthy thing. You should be very careful of assessing that from the inside. We have no idea. But the goodness that arises is from the power of forming these, in, these intentions in the mind and heart, this intention to understand rather than to judge, this intention to cultivate kindness and connection and love. That's the goodness, is, is from that not from how well we think we're doing at it. It's not about that. Can you feel that? Do you feel that? Do you feel that about your efforts today? Can you touch that? The goodness that arises from this. And then from that, on from that, we can actually then dedicate our, our uh, practice, this connecting with this sense of bodhicitta. May this practice be for the benefit of others. When I come in here, I, I'm, I'm so happy to have Kuan Yin in the hall now. I get two things I can gesture at with this, this Anjali. This is Anjali Mudra, this prayer thing. It's said to be, uh, the shape is said to represent a lotus bud, a thing that can open and flower forth. And I can bow and I bow to Kuan Yin because she is said to hear the cries of the world. And so when I gesture to Kuan Yin, it's may all beings be free of suffering and free of the causes of suffering. This is the, the, the wish that comes in my mind and heart. And I do that. When I turn and, and gesture to the Buddha with Anjali, it's this sense, may my life and practice be in service to and for the benefit of all beings. I bring this intention into my mind. I started doing this a long time ago. When I first started doing this, this little voice would say, yeah, right. Who are you kidding? 
as if there was any, any goodness there. This is really not the voice of wisdom, the voice of Mara, needle in there, because I was, you know, I'm susceptible to that. Yeah, okay. You know, my own, my own self-assessment of being a, basically a remedial yogi at best. So, so then I've noticed over time, I still, you know, I just did it anyway, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm still going to dedicate it this way. And it's, it's really has become powerful. Can we connect with this sense? May this practice, let me do it for all beings. I offer it to all beings. Any goodness that arises, even those in the chant, those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, <laughs> I love that especially the ones who are indifferent and hostile, they need it the most. We offer it this way. May this goodness be, well, yes, so touching that goodness. I'm never going to get through this talk. None of this is in my notes. <laughs> so doesn't matter. Not even slightly important. So that's the line, the, the way that first verse ends there. May all beings receive the blessings of my life. I love that. There are the blessings. What are the, may they receive this. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Sounds so beautiful. Well, you might wonder, okay, what's the threefold bliss? <laughs> you know, what's that? What's up with that? That sounds good. I wouldn't mind some threefold bliss. Most of us would probably settle for some singlefold bliss <laughs> or anything even remotely in the neighborhood of bliss or just, you know, kind of okay. It doesn't have to go all the way to bliss. It could just be kind of not so bad. I'd like the threefold not so badness. <laughs> Something like that. And what, what would that be pointing to? So we. We could talk about it in different ways, different ways we might think of what that might point to. But one way that, that I've heard and, and makes a certain kind of sense to me is you could say happiness on three levels, three kinds of happiness. So every day, what we might think of as worldly or mundane kind of happiness, happiness that we might think of as more a kind of heavenly or celestial happiness, and then the happiness of liberation, the happiness of uh, nibbana, the heart's full and complete release. You know, so these these kinds of happiness. So in this chant, may all beings receive, may they soon attain the threefold bliss, may they enjoy, may they have this happiness here and now, the happiness of of heavenly realms, either. Uh, the way that might manifest in our lives, or perhaps in terms of birth in a heavenly realm, if we. Uh, if that's meaningful, maybe literally, maybe more uh, symbolically. And then the, the happiness of liberation, the highest kind. So what could be this sense of, of a kind of worldly happiness? You know, what are things like, what's, what's that? What's a worldly happiness that we might enjoy? And the Buddha spoke about this different times. He spoke actually quite a lot about this. Excuse me. <clears throat> I 
one teaching, he was talking to his disciple, Anattapindaka, who is his chief lay disciple. <coughs> he addressed him as householder. That's how he would tend to address his lay disciples. Householder, there are these four kinds of happiness that may be achieved by a lay person who enjoys sensual pleasures, depending on time and occasion. Which four? The happiness of ownership or possession, the happiness of enjoyment, the happiness of freedom from debt, and the happiness of blamelessness. He spoke about it in these, in this particular case, in these four ways. And he went on to describe it, each of them. He said, in terms of uh, ownership, he said, in what householder is the happiness of ownership? Here one has acquired wealth by energetic striving amassed by the strength of one's arms, earned by the sweat of one's brow, righteous wealth righteously gained. When one thinks, I have acquired wealth by my energetic striving, amassed by the strength of my arms, earned by the sweat of my brow, righteous wealth righteously gained, one experiences, I can experience happiness and joy. This is called the happiness of ownership. <clears throat> so implicit in this is that this is not born of... Uh, that there's, there's this sense of, of that's not an unwholesome uh, livelihood, you could say, that has brought this about, that one is living carefully. We not, might not think of reflecting in this way, of really uh, think, bringing our good, the things we have gotten, and our material gains, you could say, to bring them to mind, reflect on the goodness of that, the enjoyment of that. He speaks of the happiness, what was the second one? The happiness of, of enjoyment or of pleasure? What does he call it? Happiness of enjoyment. <coughs> so there he's talking about just uh, in the same way, bringing to mind the things we enjoy, the enjoyment of simple pleasures that might come in the day. It could be uh, food we enjoy or beauty in the world around us. It was so beautiful watching the snow fall the other day and the crispness of the air today, even though it's so cold. There's a beauty there. You know, we need to, to be careful we're not turning away from this. So the, the Buddha speaks about <coughs> these enjoyments that we can come to. So this is a kind of worldly or, or um, everyday kind of mundane happiness, you could say. And I think we, we, can, we can become I think we can become sometimes we think that pleasant that pleasant ex pleasantness equals attachment or something you know that if it's pleasant there will be grasping you have to be careful about that I think because it can turn it can condition a, a tendency to maybe turn away from it a little bit as though if we if we open to pleasant too much it's just it's going to um, just lead to grasping and clinging <coughs> this is some uh, something from Ajahn Sumedho uh, talking about this tendency, <coughs> bearing in mind that he's living as a as a renunciate and speaking probably to renunciates to those who've undertaken the the life in robes of an alms mendicant, so that simple, more austere lifestyle. But I think we can maybe relate to it ourselves. It says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that one shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful person, you should contemplate them as a rotting corpse. This may have a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. 
It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That might be a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these characteristics rather than in terms of the actual experience of beauty. Then he, he went on to say, we do find joy in the goodness, the beauty of the people around us or in the society or the natural conditions. Once one has insight, then one enjoys and delights in beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, goodness, delight us. In them we find joy. Truth, beauty, goodness. Finding the joy there. So really being careful that we aren't in some way tending to turn away or limit ourselves or assume that pleasant experience is there may be clinging there may not be it's good to look and see because we can have pleasant experience enjoy it and let it go when it passes away so a good way uh, to look and see is what happens when it passes away just have claw marks all over it as someone once said everything i've ever let go of is has claw marks all over it <laughs> it's good to look and see so the Buddha doesn't judge happiness. He acknowledges this kind of mundane worldly happiness. Acknowledges this is part of life. He points to the limitation there. That this is conditioned, that it's, you know, it's, we can't ask any one thing. <laughs> the beautiful whatever, the beautiful sunrise this morning. Oh, the quality of the light. Well, it's going to change. Or whatever. So we can't, we just, we, we, we understand the, the limitation there. So it leads us to an essential understanding that it's actually the energy of the grasping, the craving, that is the root cause of the suffering. It's, it's that energy, it's not something that's inherent in the objects that, we're, that we might be drawn to, and not inherent in the enjoyment of worldly pleasures. That's not the problem. It's this, the energy of grasping or clinging. <clears throat> that's that's the source. That's where the dukkha is. Now, there's other experiences of what we c might call worldly or or mundane <clears throat> pleasure, happiness. It's said that there's happiness that comes, and we've all seen this from doing uh, wholesome, uh, meritorious, good things, good deeds. You know, for example, practicing generosity, which is said to bring happiness in three times. That's good. Said that practicing generosity brings happiness when we think of the gift that we would give. So, in planning the first time, in the actual doing of the offering, in making the gift, and then in reflecting back on having given and the goodness of that. And the Buddha suggested that we do reflect on on our good deeds and on our meritorious actions and on things like times of generosity to really bring it to mind. In one teaching, he tells this one, another householder, Mahanama, he says, Mahanama, bring this to mind, reflect on this. And he says, you know, when you're washing the dishes, taking care of your kids and at work and this, you know, he pretty much lists out any possible thing he could be doing. He said, bring it to mind, reflect on this goodness. You know, really let that in, touch that. In this way, this uh, at the beginning there with this guy, you know, let it in and then soak in it a bit. Touch the feelings there. 
And the, the practice of generosity develops this sense of inner abundance. You know, we're practicing letting go, but we're also uh, developing this sense of inner abundance, feeling that we have enough to share. It's not based on some external criteria. Lao Tzu put it this way, the sage never tries to store things up. The more they do for others, the more they have. The more they give to others, the greater their abundance. This, this sense of abundance arising out of giving, that's a beautiful image or sense of this. So what's this inner abundance? As I was saying, it's not based on objective criteria of obvious material wealth. Because the sense of, you know, so often those with a lot of obvious or external wealth, obvious, they can of, often feel a sense of inner poverty in a way, cling to their possessions. Often it's those who have so little may often be the, the most generous. You know, I've seen this so much in, uh, in my travels. You know, I've, I've had the good fortune to spend time practicing and uh, <coughs> living in, in Burma. Spent time living as a monk there. And the, uh, the generosity that is expressed by people who have so little sometimes. You know, we, I work with a small, some friends of mine, that I'm part of a small group we put together. Uh, we call it Meta in Action. We raise money every year and we support these small nunneries. And uh, it started when there was a very big cyclone in that country in 2007, wiped out a lot of, uh, destroyed a lot of homes and farmland and it was really, really bad. And then the village near this monastery where my friends and I had spent a lot of time, these very poor nunneries, they're, these bamboo shacks they lived in were, were blown away. And the Sayadaw at the monastery started raising money and uh, bringing supplies to, uh, well, I started down where the, it was much harder hit, down in the Delta area, bringing just rice and cooking oil and basic supplies. We started this project specifically focused on these poor nuns because they don't get the kind of support that the monks get. Um, and as soon as we would, as soon as we noticed, as soon as these people would get a little bit ahead, they would start giving away. And so there's all these schools that exist now in these poor neighborhoods. It's not just because of us. I mean, we're part of their support system, but they've all, there are several schools that did not exist when we first started doing this in these neighborhoods where there were no schools and the kids are too poor to go to school and now they're able to go. And a lot of, uh, you know, people learning to read and write who would not have, wouldn't have happened there. And it's just, you know, it happens so kind of immediately. <laughs> it's like as soon as they have a, their own, or they'll take in orphans or whatever, as soon as they got a little roof over their own head, they'll, they'll, the generosity that flows out, it's so striking. And this, I'm not trying to ennoble but poverty here. That's not, not the point of this at all. And I don't want you to hear that. There's nothing noble in poverty. <clears throat> but to see this uh, expression of generosity um, and the, the sense of the, the power of that in lives. You know, and we get so conditioned, I think, by our culture and in this country, you know, to feel that we don't have enough. And, 
know, the, the world of advertising and, you know, we, we may not, we may feel that we aren't prey to that, but it's so strong. I think it has an effect in, in our lives. <clears throat> someone gave me, pointed me towards this um, article that was in the New York Times with someone who had, it was called My Year of No Shopping. <laughs> someone who'd made a New Year's resolution that they were going to st- stop shopping for a year. And it didn't mean that they were going to, um, you know, well, here, I'll read, read a little bit of it. <clears throat> it said, I came up with my own arbitrary set of rules for this year. I wanted a plan that was serious, but not something that I would just bail out of in February. This was going to start in beginning of a year in January. So I couldn't buy clothing or new speakers or something. I could buy food in the grocery store and I could even buy flowers. I could buy shampoo and printer cartridges and batteries, but only after I'd run out of what I had at home. And they said, in March, I wanted this, I wished I had a Fitbit. I'm not sure what it is, but it's a thing. It said the new one that looked like a bracelet and didn't need to be connected to a smartphone. So it's some kind of thing. Maybe you guys know what it is. Anyway, for four days, I really wanted the Fitbit. And then poof, I didn't want one. I remember my parents trying to teach me this lesson while I was a child. If you want something, wait a while. Chances are the feeling will pass. <laughs> it says, she said, the trick of no shopping doesn't, isn't just that you don't buy things, you don't shop, it's the shopping. This means no trawling the sales section of the J. Crew website in idle moments. It means catalogs go into the recycle bin unopened in the theory that if I don't see it, I don't have to want it. I mean, have you, I don't know if, you know, it's, I think Joseph, somebody I know, some teacher calls it catalog mind, you know, where we, we're thumbing through these things, looking for something to want, you know, or online. How much time do we spend? I mean, you know, maybe I'm the only one in here who does that, but I get sucked into this and, you know, the last little bit from this article, it actually doesn't take so long for the craving to subside. Once I got the hang of giving shopping up, it wasn't much of a trick. The trickier part was living with the startling abundance that had become glaringly obvious when I stopped trying to get more stuff. <coughs> There's a, something important in this article. Now, this person, I don't know what they do. They were a writer, worked in a bookstore, as I recall, because they decided they could buy books instead of only going to the library. But... Um, I don't know if they have any connection to our practice, but they pointed to something really key here about seeing that the energy of craving will go away. But we get so fascinated with the objects of, of the wanting mind, you know. And they, they just seem so promising. You know, they are going to actually do it and make us happy. And, and we don't notice because they're so intriguing and fascinating and have such potential in our in the moment they seem like they will actually bring us this happiness they promise that we we don't notice the actual energy of the wanting like have you ever noticed what a relief it is to put the catalog down or close the stupid computer ah, that the relief is from the release of that wanting mind it's not from the th- getting the thing <laughs> it's the release of the craving of the wanting <clears throat> this energy of wanting, you know, of, of desire, of craving, as the Buddha pointed to, he said, you know, this is this is the 
this is the, the second noble truth. This is the cause of suffering, you know, all the different ways it could show up. It's, it's like a liar. I think Caroline said this one, so I'm going to borrow it. It was someone. I think it might have been from Caroline. She said, it's like a liar and a thief. It lies to us with false promises. This is going to do it. And it steals. It's a thief in that it steals any chance for contentment in the moment. That energy. Uh, this list of these four kinds of happiness, the happiness of blamelessness that the Buddha mentioned. You know, this is, this is the, the happiness we can get by really um, engaging with the precepts. And he said that this is, that the happiness of ownership, enjoyment, or freedom from debt are not worth one-sixteenth the happiness or bliss of blamelessness. And when I, before we chanted the precepts, this sense of really touching the goodness of that. And, you know, we can, it lifts us up, a sense of self-respect and dignity when we uh, feel good about um, that we're, we're, our intention is to not harm. It's not about, so we can't live without harming, but this intention to not, to not intentionally add to the suffering of the world through our actions or the work we do. You know, that that's, it's not some holier than thou kind of attitude, but this sense of, um, or some prideful thing, I'm better, I'm so much better. It's not about that, but this sense of integrity and lifting, being lifted up. And I better get to this, the other two, uh, the other th- parts of the threefold bliss here. Right? Stayed on the first one a little too long, maybe. But the, so the second one, this bliss of a kind of heavenly happiness, you could say. You could kind of call, think of this as unworldly sorts of happiness. Happiness that isn't tied to worldly conditions or to pleasant sense contacts, things that aren't tied to that. So one example might be the happiness of, of meditative states of uh, concentration, perhaps. Where the mind is unified and collected and the hindrances uh, and defilements are set at bay. And there's this seclusion from that, the bliss of seclusion can be very, very peaceful. It's a kind of heavenly happiness. The periods when the mind is purified, when these energies aren't arising, they're not arising all the time. We can develop the Brahma Viharas. These are called the divine abidings for a reason. You know, when these are developed, when the mind is steeped in the quality of, of metta, for example, in that moment we take birth into this divine, we are abiding in this divine realm. And it's a non-worldly kind of happiness. It's not <clears throat> connected to sense pleasures. And when it's highly developed, it really can become boundless and there's no limit to the, the happiness there. It has this unlimited quality. And so these kinds of happiness, the happiness of, that comes from meditation and the seclusion that we taste at times, it's not there all the time, of course. We can touch into that. The happiness of a heart that is steeped in, in the kindness, compassion. You know, it's, it's, it's um, this unworldly one, it's, it's so 
it's more subtle, but it's ultimately so much more satisfying than the transient pleasures that come on the mundane level. And these are transient also, they're conditioned states, but they're, um, it's, good for the, it's good for us to touch into that, to really feel that happiness, because it, it reconditions the mind, touching into this non-worldly kind of happiness. It turns us towards something deeper, something deeper than transient pleasures from sense contact. And then the highest peace, the third, the happiness of liberation, the peace of Nibbana, the third of these of the threefold bliss, the words of the Buddha, there is no happiness greater than the peace of Nibbana. There's one teaching, the Buddha was asked once, can you summarize your teaching in, in one phrase? Right, he's given <coughs> volumes and volumes of discourses. Said, yeah, I can do it. Four words. Sabbe dhamma nalang abhinivesaya in Pali. Nothing is to be clung to, nothing whatsoever should be clung to. And he emphasized this in this place where he, he said, yes, this is the core, this is the, this is the sum of the teachings. He said, whoever had heard this core phrase had heard all of the teachings. Whoever had practiced this had practiced all of the teachings. Whoever had received or realized the fruits of practicing that had received every possible fruit of the practice. Nothing to be clung to. Anything he said anything anyone sitting in a seat like I am tonight is saying is some way needs to be pointing at this if it's connected to the Dhamma. Ajahn Sumedho, I've been quoting him quite a bit tonight. He said Ajahn Ta Cha would speak about Nibbana in this way. He would say, Ajahn Sumedho said, Ajahn Cha would use the words, the reality of non-grasping as the definition for Nibbana. Realizing the reality of non-grasping. This helps to put it into context because the emphasis is on awakening to how we grasp and hold on and the release of that. In such a, a simple, wonderful way, it goes right to this teaching, this uh, the, nothing to be held on to. Nibbana, the releasing of that the reality of non-grasping, which is great because it's available in any moment, right? It's possible in any moment to not grasp. Let's just, let's take a moment and just not grasp for a moment here. Is it possible? We don't have to wait for special conditions to not grasp, to practice non-clinging. We can practice it, make it into a practice rather than, than seeing it only as a result. It's not that some things are, are better to not cling to than others. You know, Joseph likes to say, it doesn't matter to what you do not cling. Joseph Goldstein, it doesn't matter to what you do not cling. It also doesn't matter when you don't cling. And so in these teachings and practice, you know, one of the doorways to this, uh, that really opens, 
our mind and heart to this possibility or to this sense of non-clinging is really touching into the truth of impermanence because we, we see there isn't actually, an, or can't cling, <laughs> just doesn't work. And we, it's like trying to hold moving, a handful of moving water just flows through, everything's falling away. So we, we see through that opening to the changing nature of things, the simple uh, profound truth that if it's subject to arising, it's subject to passing away. So just let it do that. Holding on to it just doesn't make any sense. So again, from Ajahn Sumedho, we see that what arises ceases. As we recognize that and allow things to cease according to their nature, it's the realization of cessation gives us an increasing amount of faith in this practice of non-attachment and letting go. The attachments that we have even to good things like Buddhism can be seen as attachments that can blind us. It doesn't mean we need to get rid of Buddhism. We really merely re recognize attachment as attachment and see that we create it ourselves out of ignorance. As we keep reflecting on this, the tendency toward attachment falls away and the reality of non-attachment, of non-grasping, reveals itself in what we can say is Nibbana. So he's saying non-attachment, you can say non-grasping, the same word, the same sense there. If we look at it in this way, Nibbana is here and now. It's not an attainment in the future. The reality is here and now. It's so very simple, but beyond description. It can't be bestowed or even conveyed. It can only be known by each person for themselves. Oh, we see this possibility of opening the reality of non-grasping. We can taste that. And it may not be the, uh, <coughs> the final fruit the, the total uprooting of that energy or the rendering it powerless. But we still can get a taste for that possibility in an ongoing way. We can touch that kind of happiness in moments. Touch the possibility of the mind and taste the mind when it is free of not free of grasping free of clinging, craving, however you want to say it. It's always possible in any moment. We'll end this evening with a <coughs> reading just a couple of things. Uh, I think these are both from the Samyutta Nikaya. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession and of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay, and that is why I call it Nibbana. And another place, having nothing, clinging to nothing. That is the island, there is no other. That is Nibbana, I tell you, the total ending of aging and death. We can sit quietly for just a moment before we do the chanting.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.